Hi there, Christ Central, as we begin a new series in the book of First Thessalonians. I'd like to read for us the first seven verses. So please turn in your Bibles. It'll also be shown right here. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through seven. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Today we've got five questions, and we're just going to conclude with so what? First, who's the author? Who wrote this book? It is none other than Paul, Paul the Apostle who by any account was one of the most influential people in the history of the world. Some people would say he belongs to the top 25. Maybe others might argue the top 10. Apostle Paul. He is the greatest of all time in terms of New Testament scholarship. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13. 13 of 27. He was a foremost missionary, a church planter, a pastor, a discipler, his influence across the history of Christianity and throughout all of the world is undisputed. And by lineage, he actually tells us his autobiography in the book of Philippians. He was born of the right tribe, so to speak. He received a world-class education. He had a moral record and reputation that was impeccable. In terms of religious zeal and in terms of his follow-through, Apostle Paul ranked among the finest and the very best. And yet, if you want to go read about this in Acts chapter 9, Jesus Christ himself had to appear before Paul, confront him, stop him dead in his tracks, actually speak directly to him and say, Saul, Saul, Paul and Saul are interchangeable by the way. Why are you causing me so much pain? That is my translation. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, appeared to this man who had an impressive world-class resume, was moral and religious by any account. Jesus appeared to him, confronted him, and had to convert him on the road to Damascus. And since the conversion of Apostle Paul... God has used Paul to change countless number of lives, perhaps more than any other next to Jesus, without military or government backing, without money or formal power and position. Paul the Apostle, one of the most influential figures in all of world history. That's the who. In the kingdom of heaven, I could only imagine that I'll have some kind of shelter Oh, I will make it there because of someone else, not myself. Hopefully, it'll be along the beach. That's all I ask. It'll be a beachfront shelter. 
And I'll probably be gazing up, way up into the mountaintops, and there will be this majestic castle on the top of it, probably belonging to the Apostle Paul. I will be perfectly content there. That's what the Bible promises. But oh, make no mistake, there are differing degrees of rewards into eternity. This is the who. Second, when and where. When was this written? And where, to where was this written? In 49 AD, during his second missionary journey, Apostle Paul, most likely from the city of Corinth, wrote to his new church plant situated in Thessalonica, which was actually the capital city of a Roman province of Macedonia back in his day, or this is modern-day Greece. The scriptures go on to record that over three Sabbaths, at least three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned in the synagogues from the scriptures, and Jews and Greeks and women were converted to the Christian faith. And this began a new church plant, the Thessalonian church. But because of a furious opposition that arose, Paul had to flee for his life. He ran out of town, leaving behind these new and very young believers. And of course, worried like a spiritual parent, Paul sent his young disciple Timothy to go and see how they were doing and to bring back a report. I mean, speaking of parenting, for a lot of you families right now, how's it going? During the past month or so, I don't know why it came to mind. I remember an occasion I went down to the Long Beach Town Center with my two girls. I forgot what age they were, but they were young enough that I took them over to the children's book section. And I left them unattended just for a little while while I went over to the adult book section. We were still in the same store. And for some reason, I think Taylor told mom, my wife, that I had left them unattended just for about five minutes. Uh, Sunny was not too happy about that. She freaked out on me. Well, Apostle Paul is more like Sunny in this regard. And next week, you'll hear more about how ministry, gospel ministry, is so much like parenting. And Apostle Paul worried and concerned over his new children in the faith. He sent Timothy over to Thessalonica. Timothy comes back with an overall positive report. And this letter, the first letter to the Thessalonian church, is Paul's response. We went over the who, the when and the where. Third, why are we studying for Thessalonians? (laughs) Pastor Hill, sometimes you just randomly pick books. Are you just a restless type? I am all those things. But there are very good reasons why for the life of Christ Central and actually for our common culture right now, why 1 Thessalonians is particularly relevant. First, 1 Thessalonians is addressed to people in much affliction. In fact, they are grieving unexpected deaths. You can find this in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 4, and 13. First Thessalonians is for a group of people experiencing much distress and affliction and even unexpected deaths. Second, Paul, as I mentioned before, wrote this to encourage the very new and young in Christian faith. Now, I know some of you out there might not feel like you are so young, but you may still behave and act like you're young. And if you are new and young in the faith, this book is for you. Third, third, Paul does lay out how to do Christian ministry and how to do church. 
how to do church. What does it mean to be a church? The way that he did, inspired and filled by the Spirit of God. Fourth, Paul offers hope. Hope in the return of the king. There is solid hope in the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. And it will not be like his first arrival. Fifth, last but not least, how to prepare. As we long and ache for the return of Jesus Christ, how should you live? How should you prepare for his return? This is the why. Fourth, what was Paul all about? What was Paul all about? Can you summarize it? Can you capture it? Paul did for himself. We read in verse 5, the gospel came to you. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul repeatedly refers to this thing called the gospel. The gospel of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can go so far as to say, and you would make no mistake, that the theme of every letter that Paul ever wrote is about the gospel. The main thing for Paul was the gospel. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing for every church of God is to keep that main thing the main thing. Much more difficult than said. Well, back to Apostle Paul. What was he all about? Paul, in so many different ways, depending upon his audience, depending upon who he was talking to, was explaining, you do not become a Christian by simply hearing about God in general, getting some lessons or principles about morality, learning about spirituality, choosing or syncretizing your own form of religion, or just by becoming a good person. Hopefully, at the end of the day, some of you are striving to have done more good works than wicked and bad works. None of these ways, according to Apostle Paul, is the gospel. Paul says you only can become a Christian by specifically receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, friends, listen in. Do not assume that you automatically get the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not something you're just born into. It's not something you can just inhale and by some magical, mysterious force, someone else's faith just kind of gets absorbed into yours. Look at Apostle Paul's life. All his life, he had assumed that he was right with God. He was doing things that were righteous and pleasing in the eyes of God, but he could have not been more dead wrong. There is nobody, I assure you, who was more OCD about being religious, meticulous, and obedient to the laws of God. And yet, and yet, Jesus Christ himself had to appear to him and convert him. Change him inside out. Paul thought he was right with God, but he was so far removed from God. Do not assume you get the gospel. There are others of you who just automatically want to dismiss You don't want to think about these kinds of issues. But can I just encourage you? I know so many more people who have prematurely rejected Christianity based on false information. All kinds of fake news. All kinds of wrong assumptions. And if I had the kind of assumptions or perceptions and understanding that some of you have, I would reject Christianity too. 
But do you really understand what it is? Do you know what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here's what it is. Here's what it is. Gospel means good news. And how we ache for some kind of good news in this season. How we long for any kind of good news. But good news assumes good news from what? Good news is only good because it is delivering you or rescuing you or saving you from something else. I'll put it this way. The greatest problem that you and I will ever face is what will God do with your sin? That's our greatest problem. No, I dare say it's a greater problem than getting COVID. It's a greater problem than going through a separation or divorce. What will God do with my sin? It is a greater pain than my business going bankrupt. It is a greater problem than my relationships all falling apart. My friend, do you know what God will do with your sin? Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live, die, and rise again for the forgiveness of all your sins. If you would simply turn and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior alone. The good news that solves your greatest problem is in Jesus Christ and what he came down to do for you and for me. Paul described of this gospel of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, quote, the gospel is a stumbling block, in other words, offensive to Jews, and folly, my translation, a joke to the Greeks. Offensive to the Jews and a joke to the Greeks. You see, in Paul's day, Jews believed in law-keeping and good living as their gospel. They thought that would be enough. In Paul's day, the Greeks, on the other hand, believed in higher thinking, education, wisdom, and philosophy. They prided themselves in these things, and they thought they were sufficient enough. Both parties or both groups of people, which is Paul's summary of all of humanity in his day, could not possibly accept that God would have to die horrifically, shamefully, and substitutionally for our sins. They could not accept it. It was unpalatable then and now. I'll give you a case in point. Ask a friend. Ask a friend who has not yet come to Christian faith. Go and share a sermon link of Christ Central or even begin to share the gospel to someone that you care for. And more often than not, you will find the response to be, oh, so glad that works for you. It's not going to work for me. Good for you, not good for me. Hey, be careful now. Don't push that kind of stuff. Don't push that on other people. In essence, most people will say in our day and age, just as they did in Apostle Paul's day, I'm good. I'm good without saving. I'm good. Leave me alone without the grace of God. I'm good without God having to come down and substitute himself through a crucifixion and a resurrection for me. See, Jewish and Greek reactions persist. Some will be offended, deeply offended, and others may laugh in your face. 
or behind your backs. So here's the fifth question we'll ask now. How then does this gospel of Jesus Christ save and change lives? How does the gospel save and change lives? Look at verse 5 once again. The gospel did not only come in words, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. (laughs) First, Apostle Paul describes it, the gospel doesn't just come in words, but with power. But with power. He's not saying it has no words. Of course it does, but it also comes with such force. You see, if you're a non-church person or non-church friends, they may not understand or agree with the words of the gospel. If you're a very church person, you readily and of course can almost recite verbatim that you agree with the words of the gospel. A Christian person is different from both. A Christian person is altogether different from both. Because for a Christian person, he or she doesn't just agree with the words of the gospel. No, no. It's in whom and to whom and through whom the gospel has become a supernatural power. A power. This is very, very important. Very important. You see, a lot of you can and have heard the words of the gospel. But you have never really seen your own sin and therefore desperately needed a savior. You can hear a lot about the gospel, but you never actually see your own sin. You only see someone else's sin all the time, which means you personally don't actually need to be saved. You know what Romans chapter 1 verse 16 reads? The same author, Apostle Paul, says the gospel is the power of God. He does not say the gospel brings or leads to or results in the power of God. No, he says the gospel itself is the power of God. Now, this is somewhat of a mystery here, but it might give you a clue. Do you know how the very power and the presence of God gets mediated into your life? For those of you right now who says, I need more of the presence and the power of God. Here it is. The gospel of God is the power. Meaning, power and presence of God somehow gets mediated through the very words of the gospel. Gospel words, scriptural words. Paul said, my gospel did not only come in words though, but in power and in whose power? Second, he goes on to explain, in the Holy Spirit. This is the very power of the third person of our triune God. Christians worship a triune God, one God, three different persons, all equal in power and glory, but distinct from one another. The Holy Spirit is the third person with a different function or role, but completely equal with God the Father and God the Son. And here's how this works. You take the words of the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit brings power upon it. Power and the Holy Spirit comes from the Holy Spirit. This is called illumination. Gospel words plus power of the Holy Spirit equals illumination. And this is the most powerful, life-changing force in all of the world. Theologian J.I. Packer explains that illumination takes something we had known, takes something that you thought you had known, takes something that you had previously thought of, takes things that you had grown up with, 
Illumination takes something we had known and reveals and impresses it in a new way. Our friend, Pastor Owen, who was the lead pastor of Christ Central Presbyterian Church in Virginia, recently shared his story of grace in about five minutes. He grew up religious, but he describes that he grew up dreading God. He always tried to obey God and pray to God and do all the right things for God. And then when he got to college, he found himself no longer forced or pressured to go to church. So he broke free from church and he started to experiment and explore and experience all the things that he'd always wanted to do. But after a year of that in his freshman year, he found himself totally empty and bankrupt. Well, the summer before his sophomore year, his church was going to this thing called the Harvest Crusade, a Christian rally, and he attended it, and the gospel of Jesus was preached. Now, mind you, Owen knows that he had heard that gospel many times before, but it was not until that night that it clicked, where the Holy Spirit came down with power. The Holy Spirit illuminated things that he thought he had previously known, and changed his heart from dread to a love for God. That night, Pastor Owen was not, did not only see his own sin and how wicked and monumental and how offensive they were to a holy God, but he also fell in love with God because of his grace is greater still. That grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater still than all of our sin. Apostle Paul said, the gospel came not only in words, but also with power and in the Holy Spirit. And then third, with full conviction. With full conviction. Conviction is not a preference. Conviction is not something you get to choose among the very good options. Uh, conviction is not something where you grab a hold of. Conviction is when something grabs a hold of you. Uh, you know, you might say, I used to say this, I, I like only eating fast food and fried food. I just want to eat fast and fried food. Tastes good. Oh, it's so good upon my mouth. Until you end up in an ER room and a doctor comes along and tells you, if you keep eating this way, you are at grave risk of imminent disease, or death. You see, I used to prefer eating certain foods, but until the doctor came in, that report that day, it convicted me. Convicted me. Here's what this means. It grabbed a hold of me. It was not so much me trying to grab a hold of God. You know, a lot of people begin by investigating and researching and keeping an open mind, and you have some curiosity, and you want to investigate what the gospel is all about. I absolutely encourage this. But you become a Christian when along the way, when you investigate the gospel, you start to sense it's investigating you. Oh, the late Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Christianity is not something you take up. No, it takes you up. There's something prior. Verse 4, it says, chosen. Because you are chosen, that is why you get to choose Jesus Christ as Savior and God. Full conviction. If right now you're calculating in your head, well, what am I going to get out of this? You might be somewhat persuaded. Huh, 
Maybe to believe and follow Jesus might be worth it, but man, my fiance is going to think I'm really weird. Friends and family might look down on me, laugh at me. My career, my art, my profession, it's going to get really hard if I want to be true to Jesus. Can I ask you, if you're thinking all these things, you're counting the cost, but you're still in that cost versus benefit mode. And I don't think the gospel has yet come to you with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Sure, you should count the cost. You should have your eyes wide open of what it might cost you, what it might take for you to believe and follow Jesus. Oh, to be sure, you must. But there's a little verse over in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 that reads, A man found a treasure hidden in the field, and he went out, sold everything he had to purchase that field for the joy. The joy of owning and inheriting or getting that treasure. Do you know what that verse means, as Jesus told it? The man something found something far better, far more beautiful, more richer and more worthy than anything he had ever previously owned or had experienced in life. So we close with this. So what? So what? We asked five questions. Now we ask, so what? According to Apostle Paul, illumination, which is the power of the Holy Spirit impressing the words of the gospel in brand new ways, produces imitation. Illumination produces imitation. See, how can you tell if the gospel of Jesus Christ has really happened to you? How do you know if you are the real deal? How do you know if you're just not going through all the motions with words, 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 words? We have a lot of information about God, but you've never gotten illumination from God. How can you tell if the gospel has come to you with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? Very simple, very simple. Here's what Paul says. He spells it out for new and young believers in Thessalonica. You became imitators and you became an example. Verse 3, in your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Illumination produces imitation. Faith, hope, and love. This letter is stocked with hope. We're going to look at that much more as we go through this series. But the greatest of these, according to Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is love. Eusebius, an ancient church historian, recorded a story of Apostle John, John who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st and 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, how as an older man he had converted and discipled a young man and entrusted him to the care of a bishop, a bishop of a town to take care of him because John would have to be away for some time. After that long trip, John, the apostle, came back to inquire about the young man he assigned to the bishop's care. And then the bishop said, alas, he's dead. What the bishop meant was that he was dead to God now. He had fallen away from his Christian faith, went back to his old friends, a life of crime. He had moved up into the mountains, become a, looter, a leader, a leader of a band of robbers. 
Uh, Think of like a, a drug cartel. Eusebius goes on to say that nobody would go to that mountain. They wouldn't even dare to go to the foot of the mountain because you would get killed. John ripped his cloak in an expression of grief and asked, somebody get me a horse. John rode that horse to the base of the mountain. In fact, went up into the mountains as he had planned. And when he got up there, the robbers came all out to capture him. And John requested, take me to your leaders. And so he's brought before the leaders, among whom was his former young disciple. And that young man immediately recognized John. Eusebius goes on to describe, though armed, that former young disciple ran away. But John ran after him, crying out, Why flee from me? I'm an old unarmed man. Don't you see there is still hope of life for you? I'll gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for us. I'll give my life, my own life in exchange for yours. Stop. Listen. Trust me. And hearing those words, the young man did stop. He hurled away his weapons. And he came back and he fell into the arms of John. Now, why would someone pursue risk, and even be willing to lay down his life for someone else because of love. Apostle John did. Apostle Paul certainly did in many places and in many times, which is evident throughout his letters. And why did they do that? Because they had seen the best there ever was had done the same to them. They had seen the best there ever was, had done the same for them. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, what does it read? By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When the gospel is illuminated to you. It comes with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Imitation follows. Imitation is produced. And this is what the world is dying to see today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ who sets us free who forgives and resolves our greatest problem. Thank you, God, that you gave up your son, Jesus, to live and die and rise again on my behalf so that in him I would be filled with faith, hope, and love. Lord, I pray for the illuminating work of your spirit, even as we worship together, that you would carry these words And you might impress them upon our hearts in brand new ways. And we also pray, oh God, we would become imitators. Imitators of Jesus Christ, the best there ever was. Who laid down his life for the brothers. Laid down his life even while we were yet sinners. Laid down his life even while we were running the other way. We ask that your love would explode and go forth. 
Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.